Hallelujah. We are, we have, we are doing a class on the principles of prayer, or like I like to call it, the life of prayer, because prayer is more than a formula of things that we do. It's really, it should be a lifestyle. Amen. We saw uh, on Monday what prayer is not, because that's what Jesus, when the disciple asked and said, Jesus, please teach us how to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, we saw that, first of all, Jesus taught them what not to do in prayer or how not to pray. And pretty much he was telling them, don't be like the Pharisees the hypocrites, the religious people, and he gave them a few little things that they did that was really displeasing to the Father, and that was very ineffective in prayer. And we saw that some of the things that are still a problem in the church today that people are still doing, praying long prayer, repeating the same things over and over because they think they will be heard with their many words, amen. And, and doing different things that are really religious things and that are of no value when it comes to talking to the Father. Amen. And then we um, started to, to, to see then what Jesus started trying to taught to teach to the disciples. And in Luke chapter 11, we see uh, what Jesus taught them. He gave them four foundational principles that would make their prayer life effective. Amen. You remember I made reference to the way you are sitting on a chair, right? And how many legs does your chair have? Four. And it makes it stable. Amen. You can sit down and it will hold you. And in the same way, we found out that those four principles of prayer, which are number one, based that your prayer has to be based on a relationship with God. Amen. Then we say, number two, you must understand your righteousness. Amen. Then number three, well, we, Jesus told them that to pray, you must know how to walk by faith. You must understand faith. Amen. You need faith to pray. And number four, we saw that Jesus was saying that if you add the Holy Spirit as your helper, it will make really your prayer life very strong and stable. Amen. And we started on Monday to look at the first foundational pillar of prayer, which is a relationship with God. And we, you notice we said that Jesus told the disciple the very first thing. When you pray, approach God and call him Abba Father. Abba in Hebrew or in Aramaic meant daddy, daddy. It was an endearing term. It was not just, oh, Father, being a formal way of calling. But it was a very intimate, very warm term that a little child will call his father. You see, if you go to Israel and you go on the market and you listen and you listen to the little children, even today, they will say, Abba, Abba, calling their father, Daddy, Daddy. And it's, so it's a very sweet term, Amen. Hallelujah. And, and, and what Jesus was telling them is don't be, don't do like the Pharisees because you see, for the, the Jewish people of the day, to, they never, they would never even dare call, you know, when, whenever they had to write 
the name of God when they recorded the scriptures. Whenever they had to write the name of God, they would stop. They would go take a bath, change their clothes, and then they would come back and write. Because for them, the, 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 the name of God was so holy, there was, they were even afraid to speak it out. And so now Jesus is telling them, don't even call God Adonai, which is master, or Jehovah, which is God, all existing one, but call God your father. I mean, for them, it was close to, to blasphemy. And for us, we don't even realize the impact of it. But for a Jewish person, I mean, that was revolution. And Jesus says, I want you now, when you talk to God, and you're going to pray, first of all, call him Daddy, Father. And so we see that Jesus was trying to undo, if you will, what the Pharisees had taught them in the synagogue and to show them to come to a very simple and very genuine way to address God, to see him not as a master, not as a judge like the Pharisees did, but to see him as a person, as a father. Amen. And so our prayer first and foremost has to be based on a relationship, has to be based on a relationship with the Father. And you know, we mentioned last time that when Jesus prayed, most of the time he prayed some very short prayer. And we, I mentioned to you in John 17 that we see, that we can see how God, Jesus, addressed the Father. And we could go to John 17. Let's go together to John 17 and just look a little bit. Had Jesus addressed the Father? Tell me when you're there. Amen. Okay, I will start. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, which is really Abba, Father, Daddy. The hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may, be, may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should have, give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do, Father. And now, oh, Daddy, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men you have given to me out of the world. They were yours, Dad. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them the word which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known truly that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Let's go a little down the, um, in, in verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Amen. And you go down and you can see that the way Jesus spoke was very simple. He spoke like he spoke to his disciples. He spoke like, I'm speaking to you, you're speaking to your friends. You see, he didn't use a very elaborate language, very pompous and very, you know, big words. He spoke simply. It was a conversation with the father. And he spoke to him saying, Father, you know, he, 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 he talked to him one-on-one -on -one directly. Amen. And, and we said, you, you, you remember I said that that prayer in John chapter 17, he prayed for himself. He prayed for, for the disciples. He prayed for all the believers that would ever come and believe in him. And that prayer took less than five minutes. Four minutes and a half. I timed it. I went and, and went home and prayed that same prayer and timed it. And it was just a little over four minutes. So you see that Jesus, when he spoke to the Father, you know, it was very simple. It was a normal conversation with a normal person. Because God the Father was very real to him. Amen. Now, having said this, having a set time every day, you know, uh, uh, to pray. Maybe you might have set a time in the morning to have your devotion, to talk to God and read your word. It's good. But if your prayer, that's all it is, then your prayer life will be very shallow. You know, because prayer... A conversation with God is something you can do all throughout the day. You know, you can stop during the day and talk to the Father. All through the day. You know, I remember a man of God. His name is Miss Wigglesworth. Have you ever heard of him? A few of you. And that man was so powerful. It is said that he saw more than 23 people raised from the dead. And of course, it, it, it caught people's attention. They wanted to know what is the secret of, of, of your ministry. And, and the first question they asked him is, Brother Smith, how long are you praying? And of course, you know, they were expecting him to say, I get up every day at four in the morning and I pray for four hours. That's what really they were expecting. Because that's the way most people think. But you know what Smith Wigglesworth said? He said, I don't pray more than 10 minutes. Oh, people looked at him like, what? He said, yes, but I never go more than 10 minutes without praying. Because you see, for him, prayer, what it was, is that he was constantly conscious of the Father's presence. Just like Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You see, he knew that everywhere he went, God was with him and in him. And so everywhere he went, he could talk to the Father. He didn't need a special place, a special time, even though I'm sure he had, just most of us, a devotion time where, you know, he, he, he prayed for certain things specifically and opened the Word and studied the Word. But his life was a prayer. And his prayer was being conscious of the presence of God, God walking with him and him walking with God. So all through the days, he was being conscious of his presence and he would talk to the Father. Amen. And that's really what Jesus did. Because all through the day, God, the Jesus, spoke to the Father. Amen. 
He never waited to be in a special little place, close the door, and then, you know, and that's how most people think of prayer. They think it's a little segment of time that you set apart during the day to just be by yourself and talk to God. You close the door, you pray, and then you open the door, you get out, and then you do whatever you want. But that's not what really prayer is. A successful prayer life would be you all through the day being conscious of the Father in you and with you and you in the Father talking to Him all through the day, being conscious. Whatever things you encounter, whatever problem, whatever situation, whatever question, what you know, you can talk to Him. It's just like I, I said the other day with my husband, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, our, our relationship we don't always, we're not always intense in our conversation. You know what I mean by that? When I talk and I sit and talk with my husband, it's not always to be, oh, we got to talk, we got to show, and it's got to be, you know, intense. No, many times I can sit with my husband, sometimes we don't say, even say a word, you know, but we can sit and talk and enjoy each other's pray, presence. That is what a relationship is. It's not a relationship is not, it doesn't always have to be intense. Do you understand what I mean by that? A good relationship is when you can enjoy the person's presence all through the day. And if maybe you are at work, you think about your wife or your husband. And maybe you pick up the phone and you said, honey, I just wanted to tell you I love you. That's what a real life relationship is or a good relationship, isn't it? Amen. And that's how we need to view our relationship and our prayer with God is seeing it as like a normal relationship like you would with a normal person that is dear that you love, with whom you want to open your heart and share things with. Amen. Hallelujah. And so Jesus said, you've got to stop seeing God as the master, you know, of the universe somewhere out there. You've got to bring it to a if you allow me to say it this way, to a more human level where you can talk to him, even though he is God and he made the universe. But when you're going to talk heart to heart and you're going to talk to him, you've got to see him as a father and talk to him as a father. Amen. Hallelujah. Because, you know, that's why God created us. You remember in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, why did God make us in his image? He could have, could he, could, he could have had fellowship with the elephant, maybe. Could he have had fellowship with the giraffe or the gorillas? No, he couldn't. Why? Because they were not, they never received the life of God and the spirit of God. But God made men. In his image. And he breathed in the nostril of man the, his life, his nature, his DNA. So that he could have children with whom he could fellowship. He could have children with whom he could talk and they could talk to him. And that's what God wanted to do right from the beginning. His intention in creating man was to have a family with whom he could fellowship Children that he could bless. That, he, that is the beauty of love. Love, when you love, you want to give. You want to share. You want to talk. And that's why God wants to do with his children. 
Amen. And we see that all through, even after, you see, even after Adam fell. You know, Adam made a mistake, right? Adam and Eve. They fell. Sin entered the world. But even after the fall, God never gave up on man. You remember Adam fell? All of a sudden, he became conscious of his condition, of his sin. What did he do? He went and hid behind a bush. He was not afraid of God. He walked away from God. He was afraid. You remember that? And what did God do? God looked for me. He said, Adam, where are you? And God was still wanting to be in man's presence. He still wanted men to fellowship with him. And that's why that all through time, even through the Old Testament, we find out that God was looking for, that, for those people who would not, would not be afraid to come near him. He was looking for those men and women that would not be ashamed and would not feel unworthy and would know his heart and want to be with him. That's why you find in the Bible it says, for example, Enoch. You remember Enoch? It says, and it's found for your information in Genesis 5.24. It says that Enoch walked with God. Now what does it mean when you walk with God? You know, my husband and I will leave. We, we have a house by the beach. And so sometimes, not often because we don't have that much time, but sometimes we just want to be together. And so we said, let's go on a walk at the beach. So we go at the beach to walk. Now, do we go to the beach just because we want to walk? What is really our purpose? To, to talk, to fellowship, to be together, to hold each other's hand, feel each other's presence, and just enjoy each other and just talk. And so when it says that Enoch walked with God, it doesn't mean that they just went for some exercise. It means that they fellowship together. They got to know each other. They shared their heart with each other. They, 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 they communed and fellowship. That's what it meant. And you know what I like about Enoch? And that Enoch, it said in Hebrew 11, in Hebrew 11, and I believe it's in verse 4, but let me double check. In verse 5 and 6, it says that Enoch had that testimony that he pleased God. And God took him. Do you know that what that means? And, it, 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 and then it says, after that, that Enoch had faith. And God took him, out, took him out, right? And he said then, with that faith, it's impossible to please God. For him must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So you know what actually happened there? Is that Enoch walked with God. He got to know God and he had that testimony. Everywhere he went, he testified, God is good. And I know that I please him. He loves me. He's pleased with me. Because every time I come close to him, you know what? He rewards me. God is good. God loves me. God is pleased with me. That was his testimony. 
And, and Enoch had such a revelation of how much God was pleased. God wanted to be with him. God loved him. And every time he came close to God, God blessed him. God rewarded him. That Enoch said, God, oh man, I want to be with you so much. I've got to be with you. I just got to be with you. And that was Enoch's faith. And you know what happened? God honored his faith, took him away. To be with him forever. You know what? Enoch walked with God. And he got that revelation. That God is good. And that he didn't have to be afraid of God. That he could come close to the God. And the closer he got with God. And the more he found out how much God loved him. And the closer he got to God. The more God would bless him. To the point where he said, God, I don't want to be here anymore. This world has nothing for me. I just want to be with you, God. Please take me. And God honored his faith and took him. We find that also. I love that, don't you? And that's what God was looking for. Oh, God. He made the heart of God so happy. Because you see, all the other people were afraid of him. All the other people didn't even want to come close to him. They were afraid, they were ashamed, they would not want to come close to God. And when God would find somebody that would dare to, to, to come close, to get to know him, to discover his goodness and his love, the, that, that pleased the heart of God. I can just imagine how thrilled, how happy it made God. And then that's what he was looking for. Then we found out that, that uh, Noah walked with God. The same thing. Noah walked with God. Now, it's, it, it is said in the Bible, in Genesis 6, 9, and that Noah was a perfect man writing. Let, let's look at it together because I don't want to, to um, Genesis 6, 9. I don't want to distort this scripture. It said, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. You know, when we read that, we said, well, Noah must have walked with God because he was perfect. He did everything right. That's the reason why he could walk with God. But think about it a second. What is it that Noah did? Was Noah a perfect man? Did he, did he, do any, did he never did any mistakes? Haven't you read that Noah got drunk one night? Amen. Noah was far from being perfect in the sense that he didn't do any mistakes. But when it says that Noah was perfect, it means that he was a man who was genuine with God. He was a man who had integrity. And that was he was upright. That's what it means when he says he was perfect. Amen. Because you see, if you think that you've got to be perfect and never make any mistake to approach God, then you would, you, you'd never would. Do you understand? Please re say something. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Please feel free to, to speak to me. Amen. It helps. Amen. Hallelujah. You can say amen. Hallelujah. Whatever it is. You can smile, you can laugh, you can say, yay, glory to God. It helps. We find out also that Abraham walked with God. 
And he was even called a friend of God. Amen. Abraham was called a friend of God. And you remember in Genesis 18 verse 17. In Genesis 18 verse 17. When God was getting ready to, to um, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What did God say? He said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? I mean, that is friendship. That is closeness. You could see that Abraham was so close to God as a friendship with God. But you would think in your mind, well, God is sovereign. He is not accountable to anybody. But yet God made himself accountable to, to Abraham. And then what is even more interesting is that when God told Abraham, I'm getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God challenged him and confronted him. You remember what he said? He said, God, you, you know you're a just God. You're fair and good and just. Would you destroy the unjust with the just? Would you destroy? If there was 50 just, would you destroy it? Come on, God. And what did God say? Okay, I won't. Then he said, okay, God, if you find 45 just righteous in the city, would you destroy it? Remember, God, you are just. You're a good God. What did God, you see, Abraham confronted him. And he says, if there is 30, 20, 15, 10, that's pretty gutsy. You know, why was Abraham able to confront God in such a way? And being so uh, uh, blunt, if you will, and so uh, 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 direct with God. Because they had a friendship. That's a privilege of friendship. You see, if you cannot be open and honest with your friend, then there is no friendship. And we can see that God did not rebuke him. God did not rebuke him and says, how dare you confront me? How dare you tell me what I should do? Don't you know I am God? Never did. Why? Because they were friends. Abraham had walked with God and he, was, he knew God's heart. He knew his character. He knew his goodness. And he had that liberty because they were friends. He felt he had no fear. You see, he had no shame, no fear. He had no a complex of inferiority with God. He talked to God one-on-one -on -one as a friend would talk to another friend. I mean, think about it. Have you ever go, gone outside and looked at the sun, at the moon, at the stars? All of that. Did you ever look at nature and the sun and everything and look at, wow, look at how big that is. God made all of that. And be Behind all of that, there is other universes and other universes. It goes for billions of years. And God created all of that. And yet, God has given Abraham the right to talk to him and confront him. Because they are friends. God, because that's his desire. To have somebody who would not be afraid of him. Somebody who would talk to him like a friend. Somebody who would be genuine and honest with him. Somebody who would not be afraid to talk to him. Amen. Amen. That was God. That's what God was looking for. That's what he wanted. Amen. Amen. And now here again was Abraham. Could he do that just because he was perfect? Was Abraham perfect? No. no. You remember Abraham? 
Sometimes we look at those men of God and we put them on a pedestal somewhere in a different category and we think that, oh, Abraham, Enoch, Moses, all those guys, they are just like perfect. They are big. I mean, they are like God loved them, surely. And we put them up there on a pedestal, glorified, and we look at each other and we look at ourselves like, well, yeah, that's Abraham, but me? Mm-mm, I don't know. But yet Abraham, look at Abraham, he lied. He was a liar. He lied not once, twice, he lied many times. And what, you know why he lied? To protect his own skin, his own life. And when Pharaoh said, ooh, I like your wife, I like this woman, she's really good looking. And Abraham said, ooh, I'm afraid I'm going to, he's going to want to kill me to get her. So, well, uh, that's my sister, you can have her. Is that godly character? No. No. I mean, not only was he a liar, but he was coward. To protect his own neck, he was willing to put his wife in danger and give, give her to a, a heathen to do whatever he wanted with her. And then not only that, but you know that the law, Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 27, said that when a man married his sister or his half-sister, that was an abomination to God. And here is... Holy Abraham, who did an abomination in God's eyes, but yet he was God's friend. And God considered him and treated him like a friend, even though he was not perfect. Because God is not waiting for us to be perfect to have a relationship with us. That's right. Amen. Abraham was called the friend of God. And then, of course, we know Moses, the same thing. Moses was called the friend of God, and he talked to God face to face. That's pretty powerful. And yet, Moses, same thing, was a murderer. He had killed a man. Then he ran for his life. There was nothing perfect about Moses either. So we've got to get that idea out of our head that in order to have closeness with God, we've got just to be perfect. Never make a mistake. If you wait to be perfect, then we'll never have a relationship with God. You just have to be yourself and you just have to be genuine like they were. You just have from your heart just to want to know God, to want to come close to Him. Amen? Hallelujah. Glory to God. God is looking for intimacy. That's what he wants. And that's the reason why Jesus came. That was his whole purpose. You know, we think sometimes Jesus came to pay for our sin so we wouldn't go to hell. That's part of it. But the truth is that was not his, that was not his purpose. The Bible says, we know that scripture, John 3, 16, 17. Do you know it? Yes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come into the world, amen, to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Jesus came to give us eternal life. Yes. What is eternal life? Huh? 
Sorry? Jesus' life. Jesus' life? Excuse me? The God kind of life. The God kind of life. The Bible gives us a definition of what eternal life is. In John 17, verse 3. And he said, and this is eternal life, that we may know him. And Jesus Christ, the only one and true God. Jesus came to pay for the sin so we could get rid of that sin consciousness. We could get rid of that fear, that complex of inferiority, that shame, so that we could once again come close to God like Adam did at the very beginning. And we could get to know God. And the more that the truth, the more you know God, the more you experience his life. But that's why Jesus came. Because the fathers at the beginning wanted a relationship with the children. He wanted intimacy with his children. And God never gave up. He sent Jesus Christ to get rid of the sin once and for all. So he takes care of the sin. So we could once again come close to God and get to know the Father and talk to him and have intimacy with him. That was God's purpose. Amen. And so, you see, we find that, that in order for us to get as close to God as possible, you know what God did? God said, you know, Abraham and Moses were my friends. Enoch and Noah, they walked with me. They were my friends. But being a friend is not enough for me. I don't want them to be my servants. I don't want them to be my friends. I want them to be my sons. God, in order to bring us close and as close to him as possible, he gave us the adoption as sons. Listen to this verse. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, he says that having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Do you know what the word accepted in the beloved means? You remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary? What did he tell her? Oh, Mary, you highly Favored of the Lord. That word highly favored of the Lord is the word charito. And it means accepted in the beloved. It's the same word that is used here in Ephesians chapter 1. It says that Jesus came so that we could, we could get adopted, we could receive the adoption as children and sons of God, and he made us highly favored to the Father. Amen? Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. He says, For you have not received... 
the spirit of bondage again to fear. You see, in the Old Testament, that was the problem. They had so much fear, they never wanted to get close to the Father. And so he said, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Daddy, Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that you are God's very own children. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 says, God sent his son that we may receive the adoption as sons. You see, God doesn't want, want you just to be a friend. He doesn't, definitely doesn't want you to be a servant. Why? Because the servant mentality, what is the servant mentality? The servant mentality says, the master will be pleased when I do all my duties. When I do everything right, then I can come in his presence. Then the master will be pleased. But God said, listen to this. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, it said that because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, here again, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. Therefore, you are no more a servant, but a son. You see, if you have a servant, let's say you are a well-to-do family, and you have a servant, the servant will come in your kitchen, will come in your living room to do the duties, but the servant will never come and get close to you and, be, and never go into your bedroom when you're there with your wife. Amen? A friend. Now a friend will come, come in and sit with you. You know, a servant will never really sit with you and enjoy. The servant will always be doing something. Amen? A friend will come in, will sit with you, will fellowship with you, but once you are in your, in your bedroom with your wife, it's close to the friend. That's protected. That's sacred. Amen? But when you are a son, have you ever seen little children? They are in their little bedroom and all of a sudden there is thunder. There, What does the, 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 the son will do? The son will, yes, brother, will run to mommy and daddy's bedroom. Open, doesn't even knock. Open the door, jump on the bed, mommy, daddy, and goes right in between mommy and daddy. Not doesn't ask permission, is not afraid. He's got that boldness, he's got that confidence. It's mommy and daddy, and he has that right. You see, you're never going to resist it. Come on, honey, come on, until the, the storm is over. That's why God made us sons. You are not a friend, even though we have a friendship with God. You, you are more, you're not a servant, even though we are called to serve him with our life. You are more than a friend, even though we are a friend. He made you sons. It means it's the highest privilege that you can have. It's the most intimate place that you can have with a father. It's the sonship. And so that's why God made us sons. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And the, the privilege of a son is that, like we saw, is that you have favor with the father that nobody else has. You see, you, can, you have a right to what 
belongs to the Father. You have a right to come close to the Father. You see, it doesn't matter, you know, if his father is in his office, amen, if his son wants to see daddy, he'll just go right in the office and talk to daddy. And you know, and daddy will say, okay, hold on, here is my son. You know what I mean? He's got the son, he's got the privilege, he's got that favor. You know, I remember my mother is passed away now, but even until until her death, when I would go and see her, I would go in her house and open her fridge, help myself, didn't ask permission. I just went in and opened the closet, the cupboards, and helped myself and said, and oh, you know, and that's the privilege of sonship. And you know, when you go to your parents, it doesn't matter how old you are, if you've got good parents, you probably have that freedom. And, and, and have you ever heard mothers, how many mothers you have, you have children, you have daughters? Any mothers here? Any mothers? Nobody? How many of you would not even raise your hand even if I want to give you a million dollars? Well, I have a friend, and um, that's what she would tell me. I have some friends, that's what they would tell me. They said, oh, my daughters now are, you know, teenagers. So guess what they're doing now? They're going in my closet and taking all my clothes and wearing all my clothes. So now I'm trying to find my clothes. I can't find them because they, they're all wearing my clothes. You know, the daughters, they don't think it's, it's mama's. What's mama's is mine. What belongs to her belongs to me. That's, you see, that's the privilege of being a son or a daughter. It's a, and that's how we've got to start seeing ourselves. We've got to stop seeing ourselves as servants with a work mentality. We've got starting to start seeing ourselves as sons of God who are highly favored, who have been brought close to the Father, and the Father says, all that's, that's mine is yours. You've got the right to come in my office. You've got the right to come and jump in bed with me. And you understand what I mean by that? Amen. Amen. And so we've got to start to renew our mind and start seeing ourselves as sons of God. Because once we start thinking this way, then we're going to be able to come close and as close as possible. That's going to be start having an intimacy with God. Amen. And you see, that's what the Bible says. In... Um, In Colossians chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 1, or let me put it this way. You see, under, as a servant, you were work, you had a work mentality, correct? Which really comes from the law. If you do what's right, then the master will be pleased with you. You'll have favor with him. But now God said, you are no more a servant. I have made you a son. I've made you a son. And as a son now, you are no longer, you don't no longer have a work mentality. Now you must have a favor mentality, which is you are no longer under the law. You are now under grace. 
And the Bible says that in order for us to have a fruitful life and intimacy with God, we must know and understand the grace of God. And we must learn to stand in the grace of God. And what is the grace of God? Can somebody tell me what is the grace of God? Grace is part of it. It's a divine ability to do what we could not do in the natural. But grace is much more than that. Grace is God unmerited favor. Unmerited means you don't merit it, you don't deserve it, but God is giving it to you because you are a son. Grace also means is unconditional love. God loves you, not because you act right, but because of who you are, a son. Grace also means God's disposition to bless you, his generosity towards you, like a father would do a son. Son, go, you know, go and help yourself. Grace also means his approval and acceptance of you. You see, a father loves and approves his son, not because he does it right all the time, but because he's a son. And he's got that place in his heart. It's a place of favor, of divine favor. Do you understand? And we've got to learn not only to walk in that kind of favor, knowing that, you know, grace, listen to what it also means. Grace is receiving everything that God has things that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. We deserve hell. But mercy said, you're not getting what you really deserve. But grace says, not only will you not get what you deserve, but you're going to get everything you don't deserve, which is favor, love, acceptance, approval, the blessings of God, his divine ability to do what you cannot do by yourself. And we've got to learn. Go with me, if you don't mind, to Roman chapter 5. Roman chapter 5. Starting with verse 1. How many of you have been saved, justified by faith? Anybody? Hallelujah. That should be every one of us, hopefully. And this is what it says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we now have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know what it means? Now that you are born again, Grace belongs to you. Favor is yours. Not, you see, before you ever do anything right. You see, Jesus, you remember? When Jesus went into the Jordan River to get baptized by John the Baptist, the heaven opened and then the Spirit fell and filled him and then the Father spoke. And what did he say? Here is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Question, had Jesus done any mighty wonders and miracles yet? No, he hadn't done one thing yet. But yet, God says you are my son 
and my favor is upon you. And God's favor was upon Jesus. And God was pleased with Jesus, not because of his action, but because of his nature, of who he was. You see? And the same way, now that you are born again, that you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, God is pleased with you. You are called his son. And God has poured his favor, his grace, his love, his acceptance, his approval, his blessings, his divine ability on you, not because you merited, not because you did anything right, but because of who you are. Because of your nature. You've got the nature of Christ. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. And when God sees you, he sees Christ. You see, you've got, when you get born again, before anything, you, you've got favor with God. And yet, how many Christians today are trying to do things to gain God's favor? And you'll find, I mean, I, I live in America, and you'll find so many times people that are preaching six, day, six step to gain, gain God's favor. You know what that means? That's somebody that doesn't understand who they are. That they are sons of God. And that if they are born again, they have access to the grace of God, which is his divine favor. Hallelujah. You see, once you understand that, it helps you. Amen. It helps you to come close to the Father. Because you see, the truth of the matter is, when you don't know somebody, and you don't know if somebody is pleased with you, it's a little harder to come close and to open your heart, isn't it? But once you know that somebody really likes you and really loves you, it makes it easy to go and have a friendship and have a relationship. Isn't that the truth? Amen. So God has put his favor on us so that we would not be afraid to come close to him. And now, you know, all the things that we do, we pray. You know, we seek God. We go to church. We do all of that. We read our Bible, not so we can please God, not so that we can gain his favor, but because we understand that we already please God, that we already have his favor. So that motivates us to get to know him. And we can get to know him by prayer. We get to know him by opening our Bible. We get to know him by going to church and rubbing against other believers and hearing the word being taught. You see what the motivation is different. But in many people's mind today, they are thinking, I've got to go to church. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. And it's a duty. And they have that mindset that they do that so that God somewhere in heaven is sitting down and keeping a tag and saying, okay, he did good. He read for an hour. He, 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 pray, he prayed for an hour. Okay, he went to church twice in the week. So, okay, good. Brownie point, point. Wrong motivation. Do you see that? God, before we do anything, gives us his favor and his love. He accepts us no matter what. He loves us. He is disposed to bless us. So that motivates us to come close to him. Because you said, oh, God loves me. And because I know he loves me and he's pleased with me, that motivates me to want to get to know him. So I open my Bible. So I go to church. So I pray. Because God, I want like Enoch. I've got to be around you. You're so good. 
and I know and I and every time I get around you because your grace is upon me you are a rewarder of those who come close to you because that's who you are you're a giver you're a lover you are a gracious God amen. amen do you see how our motivation now is a little different and how easier it can be to come close to the father Glory to God. Amen. And in John chapter 13, in John chapter 13, we see that Jesus, verse 1 through 5, says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand, here it is, grace. The Father had given all things into his hand, and he had come from the Father, from God, and was going back to God the Father. He rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, girded himself, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Do you see there now Jesus who is the Son of God because he understood he was a Son of God, the Son of God. He knew that God had poured his favor on him. He knew that God was pleased with him. He knew that God had given all things to him. Now he was able to, as a son of God to put everything down and serve people. Do you see? You can only serve the body of Christ when you understand that you are a son of God. Now you, you, you serve not to, to merit God's favor. You serve because you know that God has given you all things. That God is pleased with you. You know that you come from the Father and that you're going back to the Father. And so that motivates you now to serve people, not out of duty, but out of love. Because you know who you are. You have such a security now in who you are. You, oh, you're not trying to, excuse me, you're not trying to prove anything. I'm going to find a piece of paper. Here it is. Excuse me a second. You're not trying to prove anything to yourself, to God or anybody. Now you know who you are. You're a son of God. And that motivates you. That motivates you now being secure as a son of God to, like Jesus, to serve others. You serve not as a servant. You serve as a son of God. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Glory to God. And so, how much time do we have left? One half, half an hour. So now, you see, in order, you know now that God is pleased with you, that he loves you, his favor is upon you. And then even more, in order to come close to him and trust him really with your heart, trust him and be intimate with him, you've got to get to know him. But the problem these days is that God has been painted has a harsh God. He's been painted not as a father, but as a judge. 
You know, I remember, you know, when my husband and I had to take insurance into our house, you know what we saw on the insurance paper? They would say that if there was any earthquake, hurricanes, any tsunami, any kind of catastrophe, they said we do not insure the acts of God. You know what they call hurricane, tsunami, all of that, they call it acts of God. Why? Because people see God as a judge, as one that that punishes, that creates, that kills people around, that creates tsunamis and earthquakes and destroys people. That's how people see God. Amen. And so how can you come close to somebody that you're afraid of? How can you trust somebody that you don't know? You know, if you want to trust the most precious thing, do you have children? No. Who has children? Anybody? Only single. Okay. How old is your child? 13. 13. Any child younger than 13? Four. Okay. Your child is a boy or a girl? A boy. Is four-year-old boy. Do you think that's probably one of his most precious treasure, his little boy? Is that right? Would you trust your most precious, your most, your treasure, would you trust it to somebody in the street that you don't know? No. And you would not trust your heart and your, your life to God if you don't know him. You see her again? We are talking about creating intimacy with God. And the problem is today God has been depicted or has been uh, uh, perceived as a God who is like a perfectionist. And that is observing and examining you from heaven. And if you don't do everything right to the letter... God is, you're going to have to answer for that. You're going to pay for it. And we picture God not as a father, but we call him father, but somehow in the back of our head, we perceive him as a judge. We, we see him as what I would call a excessive, compulsive perfectionist. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever been in somebody's house that is a hyper, super perfectionist? You know what I mean? You go in and you're like, oh, don't put your glass on, on this table. Oh, don't, don't, don't walk on that, that carpet. It's very press carpet. Don't, don't sit there. Okay, sit right here. And, and, and be careful. I mean, and you, all of a sudden, you feel everything has to be so that you feel like, we say in English, like walking on eggshells. You know, you're like, you're afraid to, to do something wrong. With, and, and it's in that condition and that atmosphere that you make mistakes. Isn't that right? Amen. And that's why people, they, they see God. They see that God is holy. And God is so holy that he cannot stand having to deal with somebody so unholy. So God looks at you and he just... No, he looks at you and he measures you by how well you perform. And that's how people, God, people see God. But so we've got to know God and see what kind of God he is. 
And so we've got to discover who the Father, because he said, here is the covenant that I will make with them. I make them my sons, and I will be a father to them. So we can get really close to each other. But you see, if you don't know the Father, and you still see him as a perfectionist, severe and harsh, then it's going to be hard to do. And you know where we get that from? Where did we get this concept from? From the law. We got that concept from the law. Why? Now, let, let, let me show you something. Here is the timeline. How many years would you say there is from Adam until today? How many years approximately would there be between Adam here and to us. Any ideas? Anyone? I think it's around 6,000 years. Give or take. Because the Jewish calendar is a little different. But let's say 6,000 years. Let me ask you this question. When did the law... Here is Adam... Here is us. When did the law come? Who brought the law? Moses. How, Moses came here and he brought the law. How much time was there from Adam to Moses? There were about 2,400 years. When did Jesus come? About 2,000 years ago. The cross. And so we find here 2,000 years. Here, 2,400 years. So that makes around 600 years right here. Now we found out that people perceived God as a harsh judge, a disciplinarian, quick to discipline, quick to judge, quick to punish, and they got that perceived that and they got that image of God through the law. But we have to ask ourselves when did the law come? Came when Moses came. But we have to ask ourselves the question, why did God bring the law? Why did God bring the law? Go with me, if you don't mind, to Exodus. Go with me to Exodus. In chapter 20, that's when God brought the law. But I want to look right before and find out exactly why God brought the law. Exodus 19. Now you remember God took the children of Israel out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, did all kind of, you know, uh, um, miracles. They were hungry. Here is manna from the sky. They want meat. Here is quails from the sky. Oh, you're thirsty. Let me get some water from the rock. And God did miracles after miracles for the children of Israel. Amen. And then come the day, here is God speaking to Moses and say, go and tell my children, this is what I want to do. 
And it's found in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and verse 6. Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people of the earth, because all of the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Amen. Now let me ask you this. God spoke to the, to the children of Israel. And he, what did he tell them? If you obey my voice. What does that tell us? It tells us that God was wanting to talk to all of them one to one. God, it was not God's intention to talk to Moses and then Moses talked to the people. God said, if the people, if my children will listen to my voice, which means that God was wanting to talk to them directly, one-on-one. And he said, and if they obey and keep my covenant, what covenant was he talking about? What covenant was he talking about? Talk to me. Huh? Exactly. The covenant that he had with Abraham. And what kind of covenant did he have with Abraham? Let's look a second. What kind of covenant did he have with Abraham? The, but let's go, let's go today. Keep your fingers in Exodus 19 because we're going to come back to it. But if you don't mind, go with me. To Romans chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What does this mean? It means that there was sin, Adam had, had fallen, right? Sin entered the world, right? So there was sin. It says, from Adam to Moses, there was sin. But God did not impute their sin to them. What does it mean? It means that God did not judge them for their sin. Example. You remember what Cain killed his brother? And then he cried out to God. He was still talking to God face to face. And he says, God... When I go and people find me because of what I've done, they're going to want to kill me. What did God do? He put a seal of protection on his forehead to protect him. God did not judge him. Abraham, it was Abraham a perfect man? He lied. According to the law, he was guilty. According to the law, he married his half-sister. He should have been stoned. But yet, did God judge him? On the contrary, God protected him and God blessed him. Why? Because sin was in the world, but God during this time, God's covenant with Abraham and covenant with people is that even though there was sin, God was not imputing or charging their sins against them or judging them for their sins. In another word, God was treating them with grace and mercy. That's what happened with Isaac. Same thing. Isaac lied. God blessed him. Jacob, was he perfect? 
He was a liar, a cheater, a deceiver. But yet, God blessed him and chose him to create the nation of Israel. Not because sin was not important, but because God wanted a relationship with the people and was willing to overlook and said, I'm not going to charge their sins against them because the minute I do that, they're going to they're walk away from me. And then... So we see that the covenant that God had with Abraham was a covenant where a covenant of faith. What was Abraham known for? His faith. He was called the father of faith. And the covenant that God had with Abraham was a covenant of faith. For Abraham had faith and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And so when God, let's go back to Exodus, when God is talking to the children of Israel and he tells them, if you listen to my voice and talk to me and if you keep my covenant that I had with Abraham, which is a covenant of faith. Why? Because Abraham trusted God. Abraham had put his faith in God and trusted him. And he said, if you keep that covenant and put your faith in me, and keep your trust in me. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You know what that means? That means that every one of the children of Israel would have had a right to come in the presence of God like Moses or like Aaron did. That was God's plan. But what happened? What happened? Let's go to Exodus 19 now. Let's go in verse 8. In verse 8, when Moses told the children of Israel, God wants to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. God wants you to put your faith in him and keep the covenant that he had with Abraham. And God wants to make a priest out of you. And God wants to make you a special people. And what did they answer? In verse 8, they says, Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought word back to the Lord. Now, at the first glance, first look, it looks good. It looks like, look at they said they were going to do what God said. But you see, is it possible? Have you ever, you know, said something to somebody and you can say it with a different tone of voice and it means something totally different? For example, I could say, come here, come here. Or I could say, come here. Isn't that a different? Very different, isn't it? So in another word, here when the children of Israel answered God, here is what they really said. When you look at the Hebrew words, when they said the word and the people answered the word answered is the word ana, A-N-A-H, and it means to shout, to speak loud, to proclaim, to shout. And then when the children of Israel said, the people answered together and said, the word said is the word amar, And it means to boast. One of the meaning of that word is to boast. And then when they said, 
all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The word we will do actually means we will perform. We will accomplish. Now, my friends, when, some, when they said and they shouted to God, all and they, and, and they boasted to God and said, all that you have said, we are able to perform. Is that faith in God? Doesn't that sound like self-righteousness? Putting their trust not in God, putting their trust in themselves. So now, what did God have to do? Then God had to bring the law. And what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was not to help them walk right. The purpose of the law was not to make them righteous or just. The purpose of the law was to make them guilty, was to give them the knowledge of sin and to accuse them. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 9 says that it calls the law the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, and it says that the letter, the law, kills. So what happened actually? is that God says, I have to bring the law to show them that they cannot, they are not able to do it by themselves. They cannot be righteous on their own. They cannot do all of it and trust in themselves. I have to show me that they have to put their trust in me and not in themselves. And so the law was brought not to make them good, but to accuse them. To, to bring sin to life so that God... And then, this after God gave them the law, what did God say to them? In, Gen, in Exodus 20, after he gave them the law... Now, let me say something. Lest you think that the law is only the Ten Commandments. The law, there were hundreds of commandments. Example, if you wore a cloth, if you wore clothes that had mixed material, you broke the law. If you had a mole on your face, you broke the law. In another word, it was humanly impossible not to break the law. And James chapter 2 says, if you break one of the least of the commandment, you have broken the whole law. That's why God gave the law, not to make them, to bless them, but gave the law to say, you trusting in yourself? I've got to show you cannot. Amen. And then after giving them the law, in Exodus 20, verse 24, he says, and now make an altar of earth, and you shall make for, that you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen. In every place where I record, record my name, I will come to you and there I will bless you. Do you see? The law was there to accuse them, to bring them to their knee where they would say, I cannot. I cannot fulfill the law. I, I break it all the time. God, have mercy on me. And bring a sacrifice. And there God would bless them. And what it was, it was a picture, a symbol that would point them to Christ. And one, the number one purpose of the law was to accuse them and to guide them and point them to Jesus Christ. 
That's what Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. If you read Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 through 24, it shows you the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was because of transgression until the seed, Jesus Christ, would come. And it would guide them and direct them, accuse them and direct them to the Savior. That was the purpose of the law. And also, the purpose of the law... Another purpose is because, you see, uh, they had no knowledge of sin. The law was to let them know what sin was. Because what happened? They started to sin more and more. And you remember how God would tell uh, of the children of Israel that they, their heart was hard. They said, you stiff-necked people. You always tend, you always want to, 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 to run away and to sin. And so in order to protect the godly seed, the lineage, you remember from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, then the seed of David. And God, in order to make sure that on that day he could find a virgin, a woman that would feel God enough to say, let it be done according to, my, to your word. God had to, to protect you, to slow down the spreading of sin, to keep that godly seed, to have it from generation to generation. That is the reason. Because you might say, but Audrey, don't you know that during that time, Noah, God spoke to Noah and brought the flood and destroyed the earth, it was for that very reason, to protect the godly seed. Let me ask you this. Why did God bring the flood? How many people entered into the ark? Eight people, right? And you know that Noah, God had called him to build an ark. And it was, Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. That meant that for 100 years, while he's building the ark, he's preaching righteousness to anybody who wants to hear him. But yet, nobody entered the ark but him and his family. Eight people. And it is interesting that only eight people entered the ark. If you allow me, it's like how many God had to protect this godly seed. Because you're telling me that out of a whole generation, only eight people feared God. Only eight people. And so God had to protect the humankind. It's like, if you will, let's say you have cancer in the leg. You have cancer, and all of a sudden the cancer goes from your foot to your leg and starts spreading. So you go to the doctor, your leg is turning black. What will the doctor have to do? Cut the leg. You said, oh, that is hard. But you see, it looks like a hard thing. But what is it? Why is the doctor cutting your leg? To save your life. Why did God have to bring the flood? Because there were only eight people that feared him. And if God had not destroyed the earth... The God, there would be no virgin to receive the seed of, of, of the Holy Spirit and bring the Messiah. So in order to save humankind, God in his mercy 
had to destroy, bring the flood and destroy the earth to protect the godly seed. And you see how that was not an act of anger. It was an act of mercy. You remember Enoch? Enoch who walked with God? Enoch was called a prophet in the book of Jude. It is said that he prophesied. And he prophesied of a judgment that would come. And God told him, Enoch, and, and it's so that you can alert the people and warn the people of the coming judgment. I want you to, to you, you have a son and you will name your son Methuselah. It will be like a proclamation, like a warning, like a prophecy. And so no, uh, 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 Enoch named his son Methuselah. And the name Methuselah means when he dies, it will come. Men of the dark. When he dies, it will happen. The judgment will happen. Question, how old was Methuselah when he died? 969 years. The oldest man that ever lived. You know why? Because God waited and waited and Methuselah lived and lived and would not die. Why? Because God waited, 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 waited until he could not wait anymore. And when there were only eight people, then God said, I cannot wait anymore. I've got to protect the godly seed so that one day Jesus can come and save the human race. You see, that was not an act of anger. It was, you see, God's motivation was love. Amen. And so we see here that from Adam to Moses, God did not judge people, but dealt with them with grace. But then from Moses to Jesus, God had to bring the law. And we found out why God had to bring the law to guide us and bring us to Jesus and to protect that godly seed that would bring a virgin that would receive the son of God. And then question from Jesus to us. How does God deal with us? Does God judge us for our sin? Let's look into the word. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 5.19. 2 Corinthians 5.19. He said that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not imputing their trespass to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Do you notice something again? Not imputing their sin. Just like during Abraham's time. The covenant that we have in Christ is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. It's the fulfillment of that covenant. And just like God did not impute sin, in that generation for 2,400 years, God is not judging us according to our sin. Why? Does it mean because sin is not important? No, no, no. Sin is so important that God put all of the sin on Jesus. And he sent his son to pay for the sin. So you see, God now, today, does not judge you, does not impute, doesn't deal with you and punish you when you mess up. Why? Because all the judgment that your sin deserves has already been put on Jesus. And so now God deals with you with grace and mercy like he did. You see, you're not perfect. Just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not perfect. But yet God loves you. God blesses you like he did Abraham. 
Even better, Abraham was a friend. You're a son. And God does not judge you according to your sin, but extend grace, favor, mercy. And so when you look at the whole spectrum of time, how long did God have to judge people? 1,600 years. For how long did God not impute sin and extend grace and mercy to people? How long? 4,400 years. 4,400 years compared to 1,600 years. You know why? Because God's true nature is not judgment and punishment. God's true nature is grace and mercy. Would you give me five minutes? Raise your hand if you give me five minutes. Five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. (laughs) Just joking. Go with me to Luke chapter 9 and we'll close with this. In Luke chapter 9. Verse... 54, we find out here that Jesus was with the disciple on, his, on their way to Jerusalem. They wanted to go to Jerusalem. And in order to go to Jerusalem, they had to cross Samaria. But if you know anything, the Jews from Samaria were at odds. They didn't like the Jews from Jerusalem. They had a little conflict. And so when they found out... Jesus sent his disciple, and here they are in Samaria wanting to spend the night. And the Samaritan said, uh-uh, we know you're going to Jerusalem. No, you're not going to stay here tonight. Sorry, you got to move on. And so James and John called the son of thunder. They said, Jesus, do you want us to call fire from heaven to judge them? To consume them like Elijah did. And they were, you could see they just felt pretty good about themselves. <laughs> Jesus, you want to call judgment like Elijah did? And what did Jesus do? Look at it. Jesus, verse 55, he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you're of. Why? Because the, the spirit of God. The heart of God is not judgment. The heart of God doesn't want to call fire. The heart of God is love, grace, and mercy. That is the true nature of God. Go one more scripture and we finish. Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Glory to God. In Ezekiel 33, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied. God, God prophesied through him and said, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? You see, why? Because the heart of God, the nature of God is not judgment. It's not to punish you. It's, he's not a perfectionist. Just like he was not a perfectionist with Abraham. He's not a perfectionist with you. Dissecting you and examining you. And if you do a little thing. No, no. God is full of grace and full of mercy. His heart is love. He's put his favor on you. And he says, come to me, son. 
You messed up no big deal. I do not impute your sin unto you because I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to take care of it. And you said, but Audrey, you're saying sin is not important. No, no. Sin is important. It was so important that Jesus died for it and paid the price for it. Why should you pay for it twice? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good weekend. And we'll see each other on Monday.